All right, well, our, our text today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to go 6 to 13. Um, and so Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come, from, uh, has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you for your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, getting back, uh, Friday night I got back from uh, the L.A. district camp, um, kind of the third camp of the summer, and um, I'm glad it was the last one. Um, um, a lot of good things, uh, but they are, they are intense. Um, you sleep in cabins, but they are intense. Um, okay. uh, <laughs> you got it, Rosalie? Uh, so, and, and I, I think kind of coming back and being somewhat scattered, I mean, summer's often kind of a time when we're scattered and people are traveling and moving about, and then to, to sit down with this text um, and just hear Paul's joy. Thanksgiving for this church, for the people that he's with, and to claim and, and even just speak the goodness of being together. You know, he, he comes through Thessalonica and plants the church and leaves them kind of prematurely, and so what we see here in chapter 3 is that he sends Timothy back to them when he can't go. He sends his, his co-worker, his co-laborer, his sort of mentee and protege, Timothy, who eventually he's going to send off to pastor another church, and that's when we get the book First and Second Timothy. Those are Paul's letters to Timothy as he pastors the church, I believe, in Ephesus. But he sends Timothy to kind of go do his work and be his, uh, his emissary in Thessalonica to go check in on him and see how things are doing. And, and you heard it here, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. That's a good word. That's a good report, right? And, and, and this is kind of the joy. You can feel Paul's anxiety about what was going on in Thessalonica, given the fact that he knew that they were undergoing some kind of persecution and affliction. And you just don't know how they're going to hold up, especially after being with them for such a short time. But Timothy's report is, is so good and so positive that Paul's just rejoicing and giving thanks. He may also be doing that thing where you give thanks to somebody, but you're also sort of correcting them just a little bit, or you're, you're encouraging them to continue in the path, wink, wink, right? Like, you know, you're saying it publicly because you want to name it, but, but the truth is you're really asking them, don't forget to do this. That's very possibly the case, but unlike a lot of places that Paul writes to, there's not this big, glaring problem. And so he just has this overwhelming joy 
and thanksgiving. And it's really kind of incredible and remarkable. You get three chapters. This is 60% of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and he doesn't actually tell them what to do. Paul's really good at telling people what to do. And he'll get into a little bit of that in chapter 4, but, but primarily that it's just a sort of pouring out of gratitude. And so as I read this passage, I, I'm, there's part of me thinking, what am I supposed to say here? Other than, thank you, good job, and good night, right? <laughs> but, but there's something kind of under the surface here in Paul's message which is that what makes the Thessalonians so good at what they do is not merely that they're just listening to him. What makes Paul so grateful for them is that they have kind of grasped the story underneath the story. They've, they've grabbed on not just to what Paul has said and kind of the Sunday school facts of it, right? The Here's the things that I want you to memorize. Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let me give you the answer that I know you want to hear. But they've grabbed on to the thing that's kind of underneath. They've grabbed on to this Christian story in the face of suffering and affliction and difficulty. And that's not necessarily a natural thing. That's not necessarily an obvious thing that they're going to grab onto, that they're going to grasp, that they're going to understand, not only in word, but then in deed. In Paul's world, it would have been very easy for them to do what the Corinthians were doing, which we think Paul is actually writing this from the city of Corinth. And so if you read that kind of background into the story, what the Corinthians did so well was take the Christian message, take the gospel of Jesus Christ, and just marry it right into, just, just photocopy it into their own Greco-Roman culture, which was all about honor and shame. It was all about glory and rejection. It was all about moving up the social ladder and getting with the people who were the most impressive. And so Paul has to kind of deconstruct all of that in the letters to the Corinthians. And you see him in, I believe it's chapter 2 of Corinthians, talking about how our honor is Christ's shame. And the wonder of the cross and how it flips everything inside out. And the fact that we worship this crucified Messiah just takes everything and makes it like a photo negative of how they would have understood it. But that's Corinth. Thessalonica actually gets it. And so it had me sort of wrestling with the idea, how often do we take the Christian story and paste it into the American story? Take the Christian story of truth and joy and community and beauty and paste it into what I, I think, at least I'm hearing called, kind of a story of, of comfort. I heard an uh, interview with a psychologist from Stanford this week who, who talks about just kind of our own brains and how our brains are built to kind of seek out equilibrium 
in some of these things. And so, as I confessed to the Sunday school class, the reason I ate six more cookies than I should have eaten last night um, is <laughs> because there's probably something in my brain that says, okay, this thing's off and, and that's going to feel good to have some cookies. And so I, I shift the balance. I really only needed one. <laughs> right? That would have been good. I would have had the experience. <laughs> but there's that part of me that goes, nope, more, 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 more. And all of us have that part. And it might not be cookies. It might be something else for you. It might be, you know, buying that new engine part. Make sure you get, you get that thing on the car. Or it might be getting those clothes or those shoes. It might be that other thing that's maybe more obviously addictive. The drugs and the alcohol that we live with. It might be just the little dings and pings that keep us going throughout the day. And the truth is our world in a way in the last 20 to 30 years, our world has kind of been gamified and, and addictified in a way that, that we've never seen before. And the technology is running way out in front of our ability to process it. And we live in a world that is so profoundly addictive in that way. What we find is that we're in so often this cycle of seeking comfort, this sort of comfort circle. I'm not feeling good. I know this thing makes me feel good. So I go to that thing. The response in the body is then to balance it out with not feeling good. Right? Because the body is not looking to just be flying all the time. It actually wants to be kind of balanced out. So we're constantly in this, in this cycle and, and we go to all of these things to just sort of address that discomfort. I mean, I could pick almost any activity, but it's the story of our life, the thousands of ways that we soothe and ease our discomfort throughout the day. And what happens when the gospel interacts with that story? The gospel that God became human that he lived a human life, that he interacted with the spiritual forces of sin and darkness, that he declared their defeat, that he actually finally conquered them on the cross, that he was raised from the, new de from the dead. And as he was raised from the dead, he opened up a way for us to step into that new humanity. He then ascended into heaven and sent the spirit that we might not just have that as a model, but that we would be filled with with the Spirit and able to live in this way that slowly but surely and inexorably kind of transforms us into the person of Jesus Christ to be not just kind of members of His church, but actually part of His body, right? This is the gospel. Now, what happens when you take that and you put that next to this idea of, I'm uncomfortable, now I'm comfortable? Well, what you get is a message that just says, any sorrow that you have, any discomfort that you have, any sense of lack or of lack of meaning that you have, Jesus wants to fix that, right? So Jesus becomes kind of the, the make it better person. He's trying to fix our sadness, and he's trying to fix our 
loneliness. And he's trying to fix every sense of discomfort that we have in our lives. We turn the gospel into this kind of thing of Jesus will help you meet your goals to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. (laughs) That's not the gospel. Any good news, any gospel that requires just one step to release without requiring us to have our character transformed is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might be the first step on the road, right? but it's not the full gospel. For Paul, affliction and distress, and yes, it does include relief from some of that discomfort, but the affliction and the distress is a part of it. You notice he's in Corinth receiving pushback. He's been kicked out of city after city. He, he goes through a very similar thing, actually. You know, in Thessalonica, he goes into the synagogue, and they get mad at him. They kicked him out, so he goes next door to this guy named Jason's house. And then the Gentiles get upset, and there's a big mob. But the exact same thing happens in Corinth. He goes to the synagogue, and the synagogue leader named Sosthenes, he gets upset with them, and, and, and the synagogue leaders kick him out, so he goes next door to this guy named Crispus. Uh, I think it's Crispus. Crispus's house. He's the same interaction. It takes a little bit longer. He's there for about a year and a half, but you have the same kind of process. For Paul, the the affliction, the suffering, the distress is just a part of it. And what he celebrates here is that along with the affliction and the suffering and the distress, he has this community of people who are joyful to him, not because they take away the difficulty, but because they are sufferers with him. So the Thessalonians who say, no, we are going to live this Christ-formed life, this Christocentric, cruciform life that has Christ at the center and expects nothing except the cross. That community is so encouraging to Paul, not because they reject the comfort, but because they embrace it alongside of him. You see, and that is a body that begins to be bound together as we bring all of who we are. People who come together simply because they agree about stuff or because they have the same illegal behavior, right? There's no honor among thieves. People who are bound together because of their addiction, that, that, that being bound together can be really profound and deep. But it's not lasting. It's fragile. So what does he say here? For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, but you are standing fast in the Lord. You hear that? For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul's life depends on the faith Thessalonians in some way. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you and for all the joy that we feel for your sake for God? The depth of his appreciation of his thankfulness for them, seeing his own life bound to them, 
something I don't know that we find in other places. The depth of Christian fellowship and community that we discover, it comes from this co-suffering. It comes from this co-laboring, from doing good work together, from packing lunches and passing them out together, from knowing and standing by each other, not just in the good times, but in the hard. From praying and bearing the burden of illness and court dates and housing struggles. Meeting one another in our lowest so that when Christ meets those needs, we can truly celebrate. Refusing to be a people who see the life that Christ calls us to as just a slightly more Jesus-y version of the success we encounter in the world. It's a different kind of life. And so right here in the middle of the book, at the end of chapter 3, Paul breaks out into what feels like the end of the book. He gives this kind of benediction starting in verse 11. Right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of prayer that kind of wraps up and encapsulates all kinds of things and kind of offers everything that he has been thinking and feeling up to this point, offers it up to God in praise and thanksgiving. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The heart here is that the community would be directed toward one another, and, and, and Paul here kind of gives the Christian story for the Thessalonians, that there would be unity first, and that out of that unity that there would be love for one another. Right? Did you hear that wonderful line? And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. I mean, and this is the heart of it, that the Lord has loved us, and because the Lord has loved us, I'm able to love you, and as I love you, you're able to love one another, and that loving one another somehow returns to me, and in thanksgiving and praise and worship, it all ultimately returns to God. And when we live in this sort of outpouring of grace, love, but not a love that comes through easy moments or easy times, a love that comes despite and in the midst of and maybe even because of suffering and affliction. And all of this as we await the coming of our Lord with the saints. Josh, I'm sure it was on purpose. I didn't tell you to pick those songs. But those last two in particular, I was just like, oh, yes. <laughs> right? Even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This sense of what it is to be Christian is it is to live a life that acknowledges everything that has happened in Christ's life sort of backwards looking. But then there's this sort of turning. There's this turn of hope. There's this turn toward what is to come that and again, it's not entirely clear how. 
The how is in some ways kind of mysterious. I mean, yes, Jesus will come on a cloud, but clouds mean a lot of things in Scripture. Jesus will come with glory, yes. Right? Jesus will come with power, yes. Jesus will come to set all things right, yes. And so we as believers don't have to live in the kind of negative tension that comes by needing to fix the world. Because our trust and our belief is that it's the Lord who will fix the world. We don't have to live as vigilantes setting the world right according to our own sense of justice because what we confess is that it's the Lord who will set all things right. And if I take up vengeance in my own hand, I'm bound to cross some line and just incur even more vengeance. It's better to trust that it's God who makes all things whole and to leave the vengeance to him. He would establish our hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians is known for this look forward with hope. That the Lord is yet to come in his fullness. But he doesn't come alone. The coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. He comes with the whole body. He comes with the church triumphant. He comes with all those who have seen and known and experienced what it is to live in the glory of the Lord. And as the, as the Lord Jesus Christ comes with the saints, we are ourselves incorporated into that great cloud of witnesses. We are ourselves pulled into that place. And Paul's prayer is that we would maintain that kind of fixedness on Christ. So that regardless, whatever story it is that we counter in the world, whether it's the story of comfort or the story of honor and shame or the story of you can be the hero, that we would be able and willing not to take those stories and interpret the gospel in terms of them, but do it the other way around. See that the, the truth that God has become one of us and has saved us and desires to pull us into his communion, into his life, that's the truest story. That Jesus desires to share his honor with us. That's the truest story. That in Jesus' crucifixion, he desires to make all things right. And so everything that is uncomfortable will be evened out. <laughs> there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. The only wounds in heaven will be in the wrists of Christ. But we have to let Jesus we have to let him be the Lord who accomplishes that. Jesus himself called disciples, suffered with them and for them because of love and as an act of love. These acts of love in Jesus' life resulted in the holiness of his disciples. 11 out of 12 ain't bad in terms of you know, just discipleship statistics. And so we here kind of patiently await the coming of our Lord with the saints. And then he says that line that at least I've been waiting for. 
we've preached through 1 Thessalonians. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Holiness, for so many of us, is about what we don't do. We call that kind of negative holiness. Like, I'm wearing Lucas's white t-shirt, and I'm eating, at bar I'm eating barbecue for lunch, right? That's a dangerous place to be, especially for me. <laughs> that sauce is going somewhere, right? And it's not up, okay? And, and that's, that's kind of how we live our lives when it comes to holiness so much of the time. I'm, I'm clean, and I don't want to get dirty. And so I spend my life kind of avoiding all the dirty, staying as far away as I can from bad friends and, and you know, bad shows and bad words and bad music. And we, we do everything we can to kind of cut out the bad. And I've seen people who live their lives in that way. They're so holy that they don't know anybody. Like they cut out everybody who's bad and they just live their life by themselves so that they're not contaminated. It's this kind of sense of, well, contamination. That in order to be holy, I have to stay away from this world that needs the Lord. And this is a hard, and I'm just going to say wrong way to think about holiness. It's certainly not what Jesus did, right? Jesus, who was known for eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and living his life around those who very publicly needed help. And Jesus' holiness is not one that seeks to stay away from those who are suffering or struggling. Jesus' holiness is, rather than being like a clean shirt that can't get dirty, it's the bleach that moves into laundry and makes everyone and everything else clean. This is why he's able to reach out and touch the lepers or those who are bleeding. It's why he can touch the dead and not be contaminated. His holiness is an active holiness. It's a positive holiness that moves into the darkness and pushes the darkness back. And we may not feel like we have that power, but what Paul demonstrates and lives is not just the miraculous. It's that the holiness of Christ and the fullness of the Spirit lives in us when we love with the love of God. The holiness that we proclaim here is a holiness that comes as a result of abounding love. In the Church of the Nazarene, our, kind of silly, but our, to think about it this way, our big flag that we try to wave in the Christian world is this idea of entire sanctification. It's the thing that we say, hey, we know we're kind of a little denomination, but I want to make sure you guys don't forget this, right? <laughs> don't forget that God didn't just come to this earth and become one of us to save us from hell. God called us to the fullness of the Christian life. And once he saves us from hell, he doesn't say, hey, just grab onto this bar and try to make it. No, he gives us power to actually do these things. There's this really positive, active sense of what it is to be a Christian in the world. 
The Lord sets us free for this and enables us to live a holy and sanctified life. But he doesn't just do that with a snap of a finger. He invites us into the long and slow and wonderful process of having our character transformed by the renewing of our mind in Jesus Christ. Conforming our spirits, conforming our activity, bringing all of it under the cross so that it can be crucified and raised from the dead. And I think the best way for us to think about this is just what you fill your life with. For so many of us, we have the sense of, I'm just human. I could, never, I could never do that. I can't live this blameless, holy life. And on your own strength, that's probably true. But I wonder if you just slowly, one bit at a time, filled your day with good things to the point that you had no time for the rest. And I think that's what's happening. And I, I don't mean that in the sense of just go wear yourself out doing all this good stuff. I mean that in the sense that the more we let Christ fill our hearts with his love, the more we are transformed. The more I look at somebody who I may be lividly angry with and see them with the eyes of Christ, I can't lash out. Because I see a person that Christ died for and has placed and stamped his own image in. The more I see somebody that I want to scam and abuse, if I see them with the eyes of Christ, I just can't do it. I've got to move towards fairness and justice because I see them with the eyes of Christ. The more I allow myself to just be filled with the love of Christ, the more that holiness takes up all the air in the room. But it does require that we resist the idea that we are built for those moments of comfort, that we are just built for those moments of ease. I kind of slipped into a bad habit a month or so ago, two months ago, I'm not sure, of just turning on a YouTube video and getting lost in some stupid game online, moving blocks or whatever. But the colors, you guys, if you had seen the colors, you would have got addicted to. Right. And I told Indra, I, I kind of come up for air after, we'll say 30 minutes. I wish it was that short. I mean, you've probably been in this space. And it's like, oh, man, it was just so nice to disappear for a little while. And man, that is a dangerous thought. That's a dangerous thought. That I just want to slump onto the couch and feel like I'm blank for two hours. It's not a good place to be. The world, the people who construct these things, they'll gladly take my attention and my time and my ad dollars and all those kinds of things, all my clicks. But I have got to learn in a, to live in a way that resists that sort of back and forth comfort and comforting activities just for their own sake when it pulls me away from things that really matter, when it pulls me away from prayer, when it pulls me away from loving the people that I'm most responsible to, when it pulls me away 
from thinking for, reaching out to, connecting with those who God has called me to be with. We are built to be so full of love that there is just no time for anything else. And it might feel like that's so countercultural it's impossible to do. But I just don't think it is. <laughs> the witness of Scripture tells me that that's not the case. The witness of Christian history tells me that that's not the case. There have been these believers through the years, some of whom overcame challenges much greater than mine, who could step into this place of sanctity and holiness of love and sacrifice, who would give themselves over to the work of the gospel in their life, who have, like Jack read from our gospel, they have sold all to obtain this precious good news. Like the merchant who encounters that pearl of great price. He goes and sells the cart and the house and everything, all his wares, everything he has so that he has enough money to buy that one piece because he knows how precious it is. And God has called us to live with that kind of abandon about the things that really, really matter. To be a people who say, I know the world may not see it. I know the world may just see mustard seeds, but Jesus sees a place that is going to be a shelter for the little birds. I know the world may just see one sheep, but Jesus sees somebody who is worth pursuing. I know the world may see a life that looks like it doesn't participate in all the stuff that's fun, but God actually sees people who are so deeply invested in things that matter that the rest of it just fades. So my thought, my question, my challenge today is how can we kind of wisely introduce some discomfort into our life? How can we embrace something tough and say, look, this is going to be a hard hour, but I'm going to do the right thing. This is going to be a hard day. It's going to be a hard night of sleep. This might be a hard week, but I'm going to do what I ought to do. And I'm going to ask those around me who Christ has poured his spirit and his love into, I'm going to ask them to stand by me and support me and help me walk this road that I know is so difficult because none of us are called to do it alone. But I'm going to trust that it's not only the Lord, but it's the people that he has connected me to who are going to help me walk in this, and I'm convinced this is our first step into holiness. I think it's important that we don't do this for our own sake, not for the sake of succeeding according to the world's metric, not for our own purposes, but that we might be made patient, and as Paul says, blameless in holiness. I want to encourage you that if you feel alone in that process, there's a church who cares about you. But there are people who want to walk that road with you. So often we believe the lie that we're alone. We're just not. We're just not. Speaking at the 
LA District Camp this week was really a gift for me for a lot of reasons, but you know, one of them is that's the district that I first accepted Christ on, the district I was baptized on, the district where I was married, the district I was ordained on. Now I'm realizing all this happened at one church. <laughs> About 20 years apart. <laughs> But that kind of connection over time, I mean, this is just for me in my own little life, is this sort of act of continuity. That God is faithful. And that he walks with us in challenge. And there were times in that 20 years in between when I felt like it would never work out. When I sat up alone at night and felt like nobody cared and nobody was there and nobody wanted to hear my story. And again, I'm not overcoming some great challenges. So I know there's a lot of us that suffer in that way. In fact, probably every one of us suffers in that way. But God is so faithful. And when we allow ourselves to sit and wait patiently in God's time, he returns us to those places and those people where we can say, God, you're so good. And you continue to be so good. And whether I was faithful or whether I failed in the meantime, God, you are so good. So I ask you this morning as we come to the table that you would come with that knowledge and that hope and that wisdom that however long it is, we wait for Christ's coming with the saints. We want to be able to say at that moment, God, you are so good. And maybe it was July 30th, 2023 that I made the switch and said, Lord, I don't want to keep any part of my heart back from you. I don't want to keep any room shut off to you. I've invited you into the living room, so to speak, or maybe the kitchen, but I didn't let you see the hallway closet. And so maybe this morning the call for you is to come and eat, not simply to receive Christ as the sort of medicine for your soul to go out into the world and to live with ministry, with a sense of ministry and calling, but to say to him, Lord, I am receiving you into that place that I have not yet allowed you to speak. The Lord already knows, but because of his goodness, he asks that we give him permission. And there may be some part of you that you have to say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to give that up. I'm ready to look. I'm ready to open up that photo album. <laughs> or look at that part of my memory or explore the, that truth. I don't know what it is for you today. But I, I want to encourage you um, as we come and eat to live with a sense of boldness and faith whatever it is, God will meet you there. I'm going to ask that once the servers come forward, maybe I'm going to go and stand in that corner over there. And if you'd like to come pray with me, I'd be more than happy to pray with you. We can't do this alone. We need each other, and we need the church around us, and God has been so good to give us to one another.